Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. From Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Happy holidays, uglies, and welcome to another terrifying episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Today's episode is special not only because it's the holiday season, but it is also the final episode of the year for us here at Creatures of the Night. Swan, how are you feeling about the first year of your podcasting journey? This turned into a love affair. I think that not only because it's so fun to actually create it, and I love seeing you and being here at the table with Ian as well, but the fans and the listeners have given so much positive feedback about our voices kind of like coming into their lives every couple of weeks. That makes me smile on the inside, (laughs) even if I don't smile on the outside. Um, Yeah, and I think it's like really a positive thing, and it's a great way, I think, to end this year. It was a little hellish, but some good things came out of the year, and I think it's our force of will to choose to look at the good things that will carry us out of this dark period and into what promises to absolutely be a much better year for everyone. So it is the holiday season, and a lot of our drag fans may know, but our horror fans may not know, it is a very prolific time for drag artists. It Uh, sure is, and some of the weirdest (laughs) shit comes out around things like holidays and stuff. And I kind of love it. So if if you don't know about this kind of thing, I'm going to tell you about it. So there's a lot of drag artists that come out with really bizarre holiday content. You know, for a lot of queer people, they're not necessarily connected with their families, so they don't go home for the holidays or things like that. And I think a way that some queer people have figured out how to deal with that is making these really absurd theatrical plays and holiday themed (laughs) Christmas offerings um, that have become kind of a tradition for queer people to go out and see in their town. And, you know, we've been to a lot of them ourselves and they are the weirdest, most bizarre shit that you will ever see. But they make you smile and they make you laugh and it's a reason to get together. And even though we may not be able to do that this year, it's definitely a way to celebrate the holidays. Yeah. And so a lot of the live ones that, and these are things that have been going on for years. Some of these people have been doing these holiday themed shows for like 10, 20 years in a row and they're always sold out. And since they can't do them this year, they have moved these shows to online so you can watch them virtually which i think is really fun yeah so if you're looking for something to get you in the holiday mood but you know you can't really go out and do anything this is a great alternative so we're going to talk about a few of our favorites uh that you should check out virtually yeah so let's let's start with 
Jinx, uh, Jinx Monsoon and Ben De La Creme have their holiday special, um, which we actually had the privilege of seeing live last year at the Montalban Theater. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. And I mean, they're entertainers of the highest caliber. Dancing, singing, there's queer strangeness in there, the storylines. It's the holiday season. Um, both Christmas and Hanukkah kind of crashed through this like weird gay drag kaleidoscope and their holiday special is now streamable and you can find it at jinxanddayla.com. Yeah, I think theirs is is certainly more super high camp and theatrical and exaggerated, right? Yeah. So just to kind of tell everybody a little bit of what they're getting into. Sure. Next up, we have Lady Bunny's Christmas show. Which we saw a little snippet of, I think on Instagram or something. Whose child is this or something? (laughs) And... It's it's exactly what you would think if you're familiar with with Lady Bunny. I love Lady Bunny shows and humor. We've been watching her shows forever. Yeah. Um it's definitely uh it's stupid, it's trashy, <laughs> and it's really funny. It is. I love it. If you're easily offended, do not watch it because I'm sure she says offensive shit all through it because that's what she does. Yeah. The world and the time period that she comes from, and that's what it is. If you're looking for Lady Bunny's show, you can find tickets at bossevents.com. Next up, we have Scott Shoemaker, who does a lot of stuff in Seattle. And for people that don't know who Scott Shoemaker is, he's a queer comedian. He came up with this character, Miss Pac-Man, and toured with this character. It's like a a queer theatrical show that's a retelling of Miss Pac-Man if Miss Pac-Man was a real person today. No, like if Miss Pac-Man was like an ex-junkie, like those pills that she chomps up in the video game, you know, they're they're like her dolls and she's like, you know, chased by the ghosts of her fucked up past and now she's kind of like a burned out and spit out, you know, trashy ex-entertainer and it's really, it's just genius. It is. And so Scott has a, a holiday theme show as well. I think the best place to, to find out where it is is just go to his Instagram which is Scotty Shoes. It's just S-C-O-T-Y-S-H-O-E-S. And my, I, I want to say I, I love all of these uh, creators, but my favorite is Dina Martina. Yeah. <laughs> and Dina Martina has this Christmas show that she's probably been doing for a thousand years or something before we were born. It's bizarre as hell and amazing and hilarious. And uh, she is also doing it digitally this year what why don't you tell people who don't know what dina martina i'm not is. gonna say a lot just check it out it's like dina is twisted and it's really weird and the performance is just so jud <laughs> i would love to see a uh like a really young edgy drag artist with that kind of lips and makeup i think it would be incredible <laughs> i hope to hell it happens if no one else does it you could do it. <laughs> i have there's, done it on accident there's before. always season four <laughs> Um, and probably one of my favorites. Uh, we've actually seen Dina's show. And uh, just look at her Instagram, Dina Martina. Um, we've seen her show. It's genius. It's super weird. You'll feel like you're in outer space. Another show that we've seen um, live but has now gone digital is The Golden Girls Christmas. Now, this is something that activates every holiday season in San Francisco. It's head up by the legend, the living legend of San Francisco, Heclina, who's a great friend of ours. And she's been a guest on Dragula. She has the luxury and I think the, the privilege of playing Dorothy Spornak. And these are retellings of some of the best holiday episodes of the Golden Girls, but staged live, and it is fucking unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. It's it's something that 
you know, I would normally say you have to go see in person because the energy in the room is unlike. And I mean, you know, when you watch those like Charlie Brown Christmas specials and that kind of shit, and it seems so warm and fuzzy and happy. That's what it's like for real when you go see that show. Like yeah. everyone's in the audience drinking like eggnog and cocoa and they're like H- hugging rocking and hugging and yeah. like sing- they're singing. They sing Christmas carols with like a piano before the show it's like a queer hallmark movie (laughs) but it's really feel good it sells out every year and so they're bringing it online this year which i think is great because it'll expose it to people around the world who can't normally go see it live so yeah that's hecklina's project you can you can find the golden girls christmas show at the golden girls live.com they're doing it from december 17th to the 20th yeah, so those are a bunch of really bizarre, twisted, queer-themed holiday shows that you can watch to get you in the mood if you uh, are trapped in the house like the rest of And us. looking for something. And listen, if you have some extra money lying around and you want to spend it on something quality, I'd like to draw some attention to some of the new items that we have available at BouletBrothersDragula.com. That's right, BouletBrothersDragula.com. Uh, we have restocked the Hello Ugly fans. Those are favorites. If you've ever seen us clack those dark fans, and they do clack so if you're looking for that that like signature sound when you're flexing your fan um and it it says hello uglies across the front they won't last because we restock those about once or twice a year and those sell out super fast Yeah, i wasn't planning on restocking them because i feel like they're just collectible but i feel like you know this holiday needs a little cheer so i thought it would be good to bring them back uh, speaking of bringing something back, we put out a design for our version of an ugly Christmas sweater. And of course, it was a Hello Uglies Christmas sweater for the first time last year. And those sold out immediately. So we had a new design put out this year a couple of days ago. And those also are sold out. And I don't think we're going to restock those. No, but we do have another shirt that's out that I'm really excited about, which is our first long sleeve tee which is a, a Wizard of Barge design. It's black and white. I love it. It has uh, Drac Morta up one side of the sleeve, Swan Thula up the other. It's just a great design. They should be released by the time this podcast is out. Yeah. So those are some good Christmas gifts that you can uh, get for people. Absolutely. And in the wings, kind of before and after recording this podcast, Drac and I are currently working on our New Year's show, our contribution to the PEG 11-hour like kind of mega drag review that's going to be going off on the 31st to kind of close out 2020 and ring in uh, 2021, um, the New Year's Queens show, our segment, which is going to run probably around 35 to 45 minutes. It's going to its own full yeah. show. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're producing like you know, a huge chunk, our chunk of the show. And we've entitled it New Year's Evil. And I'm just going to let that sit with you. Um, We're preparing that now and that will be released on New Year's Eve. So if you guys want, um, be sure to get your tickets at sessionslive.com for the New Year's Queens show. We're doing live meet and greet. So on New Year's Eve, we will be in drag at our homes, ready to meet you all one-on-one. I think you can buy meet and greet tickets there. And we sort of just hang out and chat with you and sort of like a, a Zoom meeting, I guess, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, we love meet and greets. We love a chance to kind of like hang out with our fans and people that are interested in watching the show or the art that we create and what we do. So we're looking forward to that segment. Too. And just like a real meet and greet, Ian will also be there in his underwear, giving shade to you and bossing you around and yelling at you to buy merch. That's right. And speaking of Ian, I think it's time we bring our partner in crime into the podcast to let us know what's happening in the worlds of both horror and Hollywood. Please welcome Ian DeVogler. Hey ladies, how are you today? Pretty good. How are you? (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm fabulous. I was just waiting for a drag to respond as well. <laughs> She's a little slow on the controls today, so don't mind her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm super excited for y'all's meet and greets. Uh, like Drax said, I will definitely be there in my underwear. Um, bossing people around over the internet's a little different, but I don't know. I mean, hey, anything in this world. I know you'll figure it out. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that it's that different <laughs> for you, but whatever. <laughs> Well, winter typically signals death and decay, which we invite with open arms here at Creatures of the Night, but December also usually brings with it a general slowness when it comes to production news. Lucky for us and listeners, so far this December we've actually gotten a ton of announcements and updates, so let's just jump right in. First, I wanted to provide an update on my favorite news story from last episode, the saga of the Utah monolith. In the time since we last recorded, a lot has happened. First, the group who removed the Utah monolith came forward, and there have been four new monoliths that have appeared all around the world. Uh, We had one in Romania, another one here in California, one in the Isle of Wight in England, and then after the one in California was removed, a brand new one appeared. I know last week we all collectively decided that some stunt queen artist was behind this, and I think that still might be true, but the fact that it's like a global phenomenon now makes the story pretty interesting. Stunt queens. <laughs> <laughs> well, keeping with the theme of sci-fi horror in the real world, I have a story for listeners that definitely dominated conversation here in the office a few days ago. On Friday, December 4th, Haim Eshed, the former head of Israel's Defense Ministry Space Directorate, gave an interview where he claimed that not only do extraterrestrials exist, but that international governments have known about their existence for years, even going so far as to say that there are, quote, agreements between the U.S. government and aliens. They have signed contracts to do experiments here with us. What do you guys think about this? I think it's time. I think that the human race is ready, and Drac and I are willing to make our first public statement as extraterrestrials ourselves um we've given you a little bit we've been conditioning your brains and minds for the past few years with our creations and our experiments and i think we're going to take the fourth season of dragula to tell our true tale our origin story as it would be about our home world our journey here to dominate your planet (laughs) i tried to tell the secret service this when we first met them i was like just hide in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. why, like, on our show, we showed us crashing on Earth. Because then if you just, they're like, oh, well, it's fantasy. No one. <laughs> Plausible deniability, honey. No, I mean, what do I think about it? Okay, two things. One, I hope that we move into a realm where we can move alien life away from mysticism because mm-hmm. it sort of makes both seem ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? So, and you know what I mean by this. It's like, so people are like, Here's our spooky, weird podcast. And today we're going to talk about Martians and wizards. It's just like, wait a minute. This, these are not the same thing. Like, it's just like anything we don't understand is Total. weird and cool. And it's like, I wish that, I mean, the idea of alien life is scientific. I think it should be treated scientifically and it should start to be talked about in that way. Because the truth is, obviously, we're not alone in this universe. It just doesn't make any sense if we would be. And I think that you need to start talking about it in in a serious way and moving it away from these sort of like fantasy... Sensational, Mm -hmm. like headline type of delivery. Right. Let's start talking about the reality because eventually it will be a reality that we will learn about that. And I think it would be you would equip people better to deal with it if you start talking about it in a realistic way. Well, that's what's so interesting about this Israeli official coming forward and giving like these detailed accounts and tellings, things like contracts and experimental bunkers on Mars and all of this. I'm like, it's so detailed and and kind of wackadoodle. I believe it. But yes, but... A galactic federation? I'm like, did you get wasted and like fall asleep watching Star Trek? Like, 
Give me a, that's well, absurd. Okay, but here's the other part that I think is really interesting. Like someone else, and forgive me for not having this like kind of on ready, but someone else in the Israeli government came forward and was like, he overstepped. He definitely said too much. I'm like, what do you mean? Meaning that much? it's not true or that she just spilled the tea and she shouldn't have. I think that she spilled the tea and she shouldn't have. I think that she like overstepped and they were like, okay, like you definitely like walked out of the nursing home today and like spilled all this tea. You need to go back to bed. Yeah, I mean, Galactic Federation is outlandish because, you know, I and maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I will be proven wrong. But to me, I believe if we're going to encounter alien life, how do you even know it's going to be carbon-based? I mean, maybe it's just like a vapor or something. I mean, or that it would even have a language. Or if it did have a language, that it would speak audibly. Like, the idea of it saying, we're a federation and we have costumes and we're going to sign a contract. I mean, it seems so like person based I love you, know? you know I love that idea that you're ta- you're basically deconstructing a lot of assumptions that people make about alien life and I think that's smart you know that that's what makes you like a critical thinker but I do think it's also interesting about this idea that we could have a re-education of our entire thought process about life and it could be that you know it's a scary idea that an alien might be so alien to us that it's made out of a gas or it communicates in a completely different way that we couldn't even comprehend that's scary but equally as scary to me is that all alien life is kind of carbon based and we don't look that different from each other Mm -hmm. could they potentially hide features that may be specific to their evolutionary process if we go way back oftentimes we just think about evolution based on earth and our fossil record here but what if there's a larger evolutionary process that happens where multiple galaxies were seeded with similar DNA Mm -hmm. and because we had developed here on our earth we developed certain certain attributes but what about these aliens that might have appendages that we can't necessarily see outright or different olfactory glands or functions like speaking Ian's language I'm like yes yes go go." (laughs) I'm not even gonna we're we're not talking about dildos again oh damn so no I mean okay that that is another way it could happen right is that there is life you know, life quotes is this certain sort of species that is humanoid. And yes, maybe they, see, you know, seeded multiple planets across the galaxy. But I think even in that sense, don't you think that we would form differently? You know, even if it's like they maybe they have purple skin or three, you know, you'd have to kind of adapt to whatever atmosphere you're in. Unless they come from a very similar atmosphere, maybe maybe that's the case. I mean, these are the questions that I think critical thinkers like visit. It can give you a headache, though. It, it starts to brush closely to theology and the idea of God, and then about your own existence. Totally, it's it's a big deal. Well, I think those are like those are kind of my favorite aliens. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen the film Arrival, but the aliens in that one—they're kind of these like giant, almost like octopus kind of looking things they don't speak any sort of language that we know and kind of their whole point of coming to earth is to like teach us like kind of like hey you need to get up to speed because the rest of the universe is already at this point i did see that and and they were like a good part of the movie was them trying to uh, decipher the the language yeah it's very cool Mm mm-hmm Well, I'm kind of obsessed with this next story, and I think I also have the perfect gift for you guys for Christmas. Uh, I do want to give a spoiler warning for anyone who has not seen Hereditary, though. If you haven't seen the movie, maybe skip ahead, like, 60 seconds. Anyway, A24 is releasing a limited edition puzzle that pays tribute to the most gruesome and shocking moment from Ari Aster's Hereditary. The 135-piece mini-puzzle features Charlie's freshly decapitated, disembodied head as a puzzle that truly cannot be unseen. (laughs) Uh, these puzzles are available for $26. You can buy them on A24's website. They're really grisly looking. And they're they're just kind of amazing. Uh, you know, when I saw Oh my this, god. I, when I saw this in the news, I thought it was a 3D puzzle, like oh. a Lego thing that clicked together because it looked like it was, I was like, 
Oh my god, is it like really like a fake head? I was like, that must cost like six hundred dollars or something. Totally. But it's actually a flat puzzle. Okay, that's that is exciting. Ge- I mean, that's but kind of genius. I had not heard about this until right now, and that is definitely exciting to me. And it automatic. I mean, it makes me think because we had Millie Shapiro on, mm-hmm. and in that episode, Madeline went home and she got decapitated very similarly. Um, I have her head right over there in the next room, and I'm about to make a picture and make my own puzzle for sale. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well, finally, I have some great news to end the segment on. Uh, after a lengthy legal battle regarding copyright laws, Clive Barker has officially regained the U.S. rights to Hellraiser. This is huge news for Hellraiser fans, as it means for the first time since the original Hellraiser in 1987, any future Hellraiser projects must be approved by Clive Barker himself to move forward. With Clive Barker already giving his blessing to the upcoming Hellraiser HBO series, which he has just joined as an executive producer, as well as the new Hellraiser movie in the works, I think it's safe to say that the Cenobites truly have such sights to show us. Uh, I am. So, I was so <laughs> happy to hear this news. And I mean, genius segue, Ian. I have oh, to give it to you, you. there. Ooh, thank, yes. thank you for that reference. But I was so happy to see this because I think there's, it's just such a travesty to see someone who creates something so imaginative and so impactful in pop culture and in the horror world and then they don't have control of their own IP and Mm -hmm. I kind of looked at this a little bit that goes into effect I mean they may be allowing him to make sort of like executive decisions but that'll go into effect in December of next year so Mm -hmm. 2021 December 19th it all goes back to Clive which I love to see that Clive Barker is kind of a friend of ours and he's hosted our Halloween ball our annual ball like five years in a row Um, it's been a few years since he has been a guest but we do love him i've seen his house his paintings i mean such a prolific creator but certainly the hellraiser series is kind of like the crown jewel in his like weird dark crown mm-hmm. and i'm so happy to to see and hear that his um ip is going back to him definitely well that is the perfect transition to move on to our newest section of the podcast which is our literary review for this episode's reading assignment, we asked you all to sink your fangs into Clive Barker's novel, The Hellbound Heart, which of course was the basis for the Hellraiser film. We are noticing that you are all tagging us on social media and that you are buying the books we're recommending and reading along with us, and we are very glad to see that. So let's discuss The Hellbound Heart. What did you all think? Well, you know, we've been asked many, many times before, what are some of our favorite horror movies? And we have different answers. And one of the ones that usually makes my top three is Hellraiser um, for so many reasons. But probably the biggest one is that when I saw it, the concepts that were introduced to me at a young age were so redefining. It, it sort of redefined my reality. And having a chance to read the book, some of that reality shattering and kind of like rebuilding actually happens. And Clive Barker is pretty deft at describing that, how worlds can sort of be almost like overlapped on our plane and an entity from one can kind of pass to the other. And these are kind of concepts that really quickened my mind when I was like a little kid and saw Hellraiser for the first time. It was kind of a treat to read the book because I was surprised to see some of the changes that they made for the film adaptation, but how much of the film actually stayed true Mm -hmm. to the original source material. Uh, One of the most exciting things for me was the fact that the Cenobites, just like the film, get introduced right away totally that was cool right yeah, like, absolutely. what did you think because i know this was like this was a first time read for all of us yeah it's the first time read for me and just as a general note i love the hellbound heart i thought it was fabulous and just to answer your question yeah when the cenobites appear i mean it's maybe like i think the first chapter is just kind of a lot of like illustrative prose but then like right as the second one starts bam all the cenobites are there and the way that they're described i'm like 
oh my God, it's so descriptive and it's so accurate to the way that, you know, if I was going to be, okay, like let's make Cenobites off of the books or off of the book, it would be exactly what they did in the movie. I think it's great. They're like dusted with ash and just the way they're described is just fabulous and dark and sensual. They're just cool. No, absolutely. And speaking about his prose, like Clive Barker's writing is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. This is the type of writing that I love and live for. It's flourished. There's a lot of embellishments. There's choice words strung together that create sentences that I would never imagine to create. And and I often found myself like just stopping and like Googling the definition of words that I thought I understood what they meant, but Clive Barker used them in such a new way. And it, it really just kind of created this universe of like darkness and embellishment and jewels and death and sex in such a way that I could never imagine. It was like, it was just a treat to read the way he writes. Absolutely. I will say that's maybe one of my only criticisms of the book is that it has, in my opinion, such a strong, beautiful opening. Like, you know, like we're talking about this really gorgeous prose and just the, the way that he describes everything that's happening. I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm Frank having my sensory overload right here. Yeah. But then as the book progresses, I think that the narrative takes a little bit more control and we start to kind of, you know, we have full chapters that are just, here's what's happening in the story. And as a result, I think those feel a little bit lackluster compared to the opening. Not to say that any part of it is like bad, but that would be my kind of like, you know, general criticism. I'm going to totally agree. And I think the book, the movie did that too, just like the book. I, a spell was cast on me from chapter one. It's flourish, it's embellished, it's like dimensions opening up. There's birds and chimes and all this this sensory descriptions that just bring me kind of questioning my own senses and how I interpret them. And the introduction of the Cenobites was really amplified. Maybe we can put a pin <laughs> in that for a few moments. We'll get back to that. Um, but then there are these kind of like mechanical necessities that the, mm-hmm. the movie also goes through where I think it gets a little clunky, you know, when Kirstie has gone to the hospital after Frank kind of like attacks her. And then they introduce this idea that like, well, the police showed up. Oh, but here's this cube. You're like, girl, that's a little clunky. And like, mm-hmm. would the police just hand over a potential weapon? Cause there's blood all uh, yeah, over it. Blood on and, it. And you crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it kind of felt like uh, this is just kind of like, um, it's almost as if the mechanics of the story sort of got in the way. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I feel that. And I think that maybe something that is a result of the, the novella being a little bit shorter. I feel like I kind of actually liked the way that it's like, you know, Julia goes from a character who she's kind of like, eh, I'm kind of a bored housewife to like full blown murderous over the course of like, (laughs) and like no remorse, just like cold, crazy in the span of like one chapter. And I was reading, I was like, okay, if this was a different story, I think I may be like, I don't understand how she got here, but because of, you know, the whole story is about sadomasochism and just kind of the perversity of pleasure. I was like, Okay, yeah, work, bitch. <laughs> like, totally. No, I know some things changed, but thank God, Julia's yes. Julia's character did not. I mean, she <laughs> is still the queen of like my fucking dark heart. Speaking on uh, the perversion of the story and the kind of the perversion of the characters at their core, Julia going from a housewife who maybe isn't that happy with her marriage to like full blown multi murderess, like watching her fucking dismembered ex-lover crossover from the spirit world and then literally feeding him to make a new body to like fuck her fresh like that that's who she is but that is said in such a beautiful way like i want to i want to quote this um because this is this is basically after a few of the johns that she brings home have been murdered in in the cold room and frank has come out of the shadows and is now like rebuilding her body um she said she looked down at the floor 
a dead man's hand lay between them. For an instant, she was almost overwhelmed by self-revulsion, which is like a little clue into that. She knows she's aware of what's happening, but all that she had done and dreamed of doing in the last few days rose up in front of her, a parade of seductions that had ended in death. These are the guys that she brought home parading that they were going to fuck, but then she ends up killing them all for the death that she had hoped so fervently would end in seduction. So she she was trying to take her lover from death into seduction by bringing seduction into death. And I thought that was just such a cool juxtaposition that, that Clive Barker created. I love that you read that passage out loud. Like I feel like I was reading certain passages out loud just to myself to be like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. But we're literally talking about slicing people's skin off in jars of piss. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about slicing people's skin off in jars of piss a little bit more? Oh, yes, jar of piss queen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so having a discussion and celebrating probably like the best characters and the most notable characters from the book, let's talk about the Cenobites for a few minutes. Let's do it. Because as we said, they were introduced very early in the film. They also got very uh, early introduced in the book. And I want to focus on Pinhead because mm-hmm. he's he's definitely like the supervillain of the entire series. But in, in The Hellbound Heart, he doesn't play as prominent of a role as yeah. you might imagine. Um, and some of the things that I think stand out were the fact that the performance the actor gives in the in the movie is so masculine and mm-hmm. and commanding and Shakespearean and dramatic, but the words that sh- that the Pinhead character in the book speaks are probably like very few. Mm-hmm. And what I found interesting was that Clive Barker went out of his way to describe uh, the Pinhead character as you know having pins all over the head, but also the tongue, mm-hmm. and they were topped with jewels, yeah. and it, and it kind of creates like this different sort of like lavish almost like luxurious but painful juxtaposition in the descriptors and that the pinhead character's voice was distinctly feminine. Mm-hmm. So the the gender is is described as being hidden, but the, the voice indicates femininity. And it's definitely not something that I was prepared for because yeah. I always thought the Cenobites were led by not only was it Pinhead, but the fact that there were three males and only one female and the female kind of didn't get a name. It female seemed, Cenobite. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, it seemed like, oh, maybe, maybe the females didn't really play a big part. But from reading The Hellbound Heart, I now see Pinhead as, as a female character. And mm-hmm. it's like really interesting. Absolutely. Well, I feel like just talking about the way that the Cenobites are described in The Hellbound Heart, I feel like people should go back and watch season two, episode one of the Blade Brothers Dragula and just take a look at the Cenobites that are presented on stage because even reading it, I was like, wow, Disasterina's Cenobite is truly like a part of this universe. You know, like the way that Clive Barker describes sometimes the fabrics of their clothing weaving not only like around the flesh or being bound to them, but through the flesh. Oh, I was like, oh my God, it's so visceral to think like, okay, there is, you know, material that's just like ripped through them or the hooks that kind of, you know, pull their, their faces apart. Like, you know, James, the Cenobite was very focused on sex and, you know, kind of pulling all these orifices apart. I was just like, oh my God, suddenly, hi, this whole universe is there. Play with it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most exciting moments for me was the description given of the fourth Cenobite because you see three right away. You quickly learn that there's actually five. Like Frank was expecting five. He says like, Mm -hmm. oh, I thought there was going to be five of you. And the answer given was like, oh, if the engineer seems it necessary to appear, then the engineer would appear. So that was kind of thrilling for me because they make reference to a character that we end up seeing in like Hellraiser 2. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but is the description of the fourth Cenobite. Because this one, again, is absolutely feminine. She's like super deadly. She's sitting on a mountain of skulls. It was obvious that she was responsible for the people's death that she was kind of like sitting on. There's 20 tongues like displayed on her thighs. And then she opens her legs to kind of obscenely but purposefully display how scarified her pubis was. And it was like this sexual invitation. Yeah, totally. I'm like, okay, also big time mood, mama. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We, We got brought to like very wild places reading The Hellbound Heart. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really safe to say like we all really enjoyed this reading assignment. Like this was, you know, kind of our maybe like an upgrade from, you know, the first we read, you know, was like 40 pages. This was, you know, 140. And I feel like it was just amazing. You know, like I hope that, you know, listener, I hope listeners really enjoyed it too. Yeah. To to kind of contrast the way Stephen King writes, I yeah. think like they're both kind of powerful. I understand why they're both so prolific and respected, but Clive Barker's style couldn't be further from Stephen King. Like, where Stephen King is kind of like blunt and kind of stripped of embellishment and just factual and straightforward, Clive Barker is super imaginative, very descriptive, very flourished. And if you love details like invocating extra dimensional beings with like jars of piss and trays of dove heads <laughs> then get into the hellbound heart because i fucking loved it totally oh sorry do you have one last thing literally one of my favorite things that happens in this book is frank saying come to daddy <laughs> <laughs> like, wow work clive <laughs> okay well i feel like you two could go off about this book for about a hundred years and unfortunately we are out of time for the book review We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be diving into this episode's Creature Feature movie review with our special guest reviewer, writer, and director, Michael Varadi. Stay tuned. Arda Wiggs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULE10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to the Creatures of the Night Creature Feature Movie Review. For today's movie review, we are joined by Fangoria Magazine contributor, the host of the Dead for Filth podcast, and contributing writer and director on the Boule Brothers' Dragula and many other horrific films, Michael Varadi. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We've wanted to have you on forever, so finally, here you are. Yeah, something that our listeners may not know is, now we've been on many podcasts, obviously including our own, but our very first podcast performance was with you as guests on Dead for Filth. Is that true? I didn't know yeah, that, that was that the is first true. one. Is it? I think so. Hmm, Don't correct me. Let's just go with it, because it, like, it sounds good. <laughs> okay, I think but that's true, I, but I cha- okay. I challenge you. Which one did we do before I that? I thought we did... Uh, Katya's first, didn't we? Mm, absolutely not. That, that was much one? longer. Yeah, but see, that was that was later. That was like 
right before the pandemic. Huh. I don't know. No, it wasn't. She doesn't know anything. <laughs> Michael, Dead for Filth was our first appearance, and that's what we're going to go with. Well, I'll, I'll take that place in history then. Thank there. you. Well, it was fun, and you were a great host. I was like, oh, my God, we have to have Michael on our podcast now. So here you are. You know, before we get into the movie review, I want to say, you know, you've written and directed a lot of different films and projects. But last season, we brought you on to the Belay Brothers Dragula for season three. So for listeners at home, I was wondering if you could tell them a little bit about what it was like to work on the show. It was an absolute blast. Uh, you know, the thing about the show is that I like to tell people, the things that we're allowed to talk about the show that I like to tell people, <laughs> is that no matter how cool it looks on television, it's even cooler in real life. Especially, you know, when when the competitors come out on the runway. If you're gagged at home, we're gagged behind the camera. It's just, it is truly dark magic in action. And uh, I loved showing up every day because, you know, I... I think that it's obvious to viewers but something that they forget is that when they walk out that's the first time we're seeing them too right yeah <laughs> so it's like truly jaw dropping the amount of artistry and creativity that comes to that stage and the uh, the competitors that you curate to bring to the show i mean i met all of them on that first day and fell in love with them all in very different ways and you know became fans of them all just by what they brought every episode. Uh, so that to me is the thing that I always think about because being behind the scenes, you're still kind of a fan because yes, you know what the show's about and you know what the, the construct of the show is about, but what the meat of the show is, what the competitors bring is still something that you don't discover till they bring it. And you don't know what they're going to do until they do it. Exactly. <laughs> sometimes to our shock and sometimes to our awe. <laughs> You had the distinct uh, privilege of kind of being on the judging stage with us. Even though people didn't see you, you would be like right behind us or right around there. What was it like? What was it? Did you feel any tension or what was it like sort of being around that while it was happening? Yeah. You know, it is funny because I did guest judge on episode four of season three, but for pretty much every judgment, I was usually lurking behind one of you <laughs> just out of frame, listening to the conversation. Uh I don't think it ever felt tense. I think the conversation was always serious. You know, I think that everybody, you know, both both of you and the guest judges always wanted to make the utmost correct decision. But what I really appreciated about it was how much the judges came to play. You know, it, it would be real easy to go on a reality show or a competition show and just know that, you know, I'm the guest star of the week and I can kind of coast through sure. and, and uh, sort of get the spotlight but every single one of those judges took it really seriously. And uh, I think about just the level of commitment they brought. And that made our jobs easier, too, because it could have just been, oh, I like that and I hate that, no explanation. But almost all of those judges took very serious notes. They defended their positions. I think about Millie Shapiro, honestly, is one of my faves because she was very committed to forensic science. <laughs> she was savage. Yeah. And I just remember her talking about, well, you know, I see you have this kind of wound, but the blood splatter doesn't match what sort of, uh, you know, sp spray would come out of a wound like that. And just <laughs> the competitors just and, like. And Eva's getting... heart crushed. <laughs> Just <laughs> blankly staring at her like this 16-year-old girl is ripping me apart with yeah. medical science. Because it's true, but would you ever think about that? Especially if they're like, I'm putting a horror look together. Let me throw some blood on here. And you're like, bitch, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. 
You really have to. I think you're right, though, and I've not taken the time to appreciate how serious and how much thought goes into the judges kind of performing for the camera and also being like earnest and and really giving good quality feedback. Part of it, I think, is because of the tone that we just set. Like these are artists. Yes, it's drag and it's crazy. And oftentimes it's like people in weird clothes. But, you know, people are putting their heart and their creativity on the line. We take it seriously. We appreciate it. They do, too. And I think they're sitting so close to us that if they tried to fuck around, we would just like <laughs> grab them up real quick. <laughs> well, I think it would be real easy for people on the Internet. And it is real easy for people on the internet to assume that these are snap decisions or like quickly made to to form a storyline or whatever and that's not the case there's a lot of discussion and deliberation that goes into it and what they don't know and I, i think it's okay for me to say is that you know after the judges see the floor show, there's a little bit of a break. Yeah. And you two are not always with the judges. I remember, you know, you were still getting ready for mm-hmm. final judgment. And I was upstairs with Henry Rollins and he was going over notes and notes and notes and be like, I really like this, but this person did this. And like having like very serious like discussion with himself. And pretty much every judge did that. Yeah. It's real easy to assume it happens quickly because it happens quickly in the span of, of a television show. Yeah. But the, that final decision always comes with with a with a lot of of soul searching or whatever term you want to use, and it's a cool process to be part of. And you, that's the thing. You would like you said when we watched the floor show, you usually walked off on every episode and would talk with the guest judges and kind of help them figure out what they. And sometimes we wouldn't, sometimes we wouldn't. Sometimes that was on purpose because I'm like, okay, I think on episode one it was really important that we talked immediately. So we all huddled and kind of did that. But I felt like after that, it was more important to let them get their thoughts together and then let's talk because otherwise we could influence what they're thinking. You know, if we immediately are like, well, that person's terrible. They're like, oh, right. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, so I thought it was great to have everyone separate, formulate their opinion and then come back together. Um, But you're right, it takes hours to do. And they, you know, it looks like we're just like, that's terrible. Go home. You know, right. and it's never like that. <laughs> no, every single clip of every single response from one of the judges uh, really came from a thoughtful place. Yeah. What, what is it? What would you say it's like coming onto the set for the first time? Like viewers at home don't know, like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Is it frantic? Is it calm? Like, what do, what do you, what's your takeaway from being there? What's it like to be on the set of Dracula? Well, I think that my experience is is a little different than probably some of the other crew members only because uh, a lot of what I was there for was to help with writing and kind of narrative shaping. And then you had me there also to craft the horror vignettes that opened the episodes. But there is a large reality TV crew that goes into putting a show like this together. And I come from the world of narrative film. And um, Yes, film crews can be big, and there's a lot of moving parts, but for a reality show, that's quadruple. You know, on a movie, you may have two operating cameras. On a reality show, you may have six or seven or eight or a 12. Yeah. And um, so it's controlled chaos, and I say that in in an absolute loving way because it couldn't be anything but. It's my specialty. But no, I think that being on set of Dragula is is really watching a lot of artists coming together in a lot of different ways to make a a singular vision happen. And that is not an easy thing to do because it's not just the competitors. It's the competitors plus the Boulay brothers, plus the camera team of dozens of people, plus the crew that does the art design, that builds the set, that builds the stage, that decorates the hospital, that does the X, Y, Z. You know, and then having the conversation of... 
how does this all fit into the the story air quotes of the episode and and that kind of chaos is is sort of beautiful but isn't that what filth horror dragon glamour are all about you know you have you have no choice but to go with the flow because if you don't you die. And and let's never underestimate the chaotic factor of mother nature, specifically on your episode, season three, episode four, when we were on the judging block and the hell storm from nowhere came in, froze us to the bone. The (laughs) wind was whipping. Someone was on a ladder. I'm like, this sound is going to be trash. No one will understand a word that we say. And you kind of have to push through and make it work. Never in my life, more than that day was I excited that I had someone put a suit together for me because I was like dressed up and I, but I had, was layered. You two were almost naked. Oh my God. I don't know how you were not icicles. I mean, I was like holding back the teeth chatters and just kind of like, you know, my, my limbs were shaking and I'm like, mm. seriously, it was like do or die. You know what got me through was looking down into the arena and seeing Louisiana and being like, <laughs> Louisiana's literally dressed in a piece of duct tape. You're so sure. I'm like, yeah. I can't, I'm like, I can't, I can't say anything. Yeah. I got to grin and bear it. Like if she could deal with it, certainly we can as the host of the show. Truly. So yeah. But, but talk about TV magic because it, the wind was like a gale force. It was freezing. And I, I've seen a lot of people who comment on episode four from season three, notice the trees behind us are like whipping back and forth, but we seem to be like perfectly still and calm. <laughs> That's, that is editing right there. Oh wow. my God. I felt like I was using telekinesis to keep my headpiece on because, you know, the headpieces are not super secure and it's like a giant fan on top. It's like a wind catcher. Yeah. So I'm like standing there. I'm like, do not blow off. Like I'm like <laughs> mentally trying to just will it not to blow off my head. And yeah, that, that episode was so crazy, but so fun at the same time. Not that night. <laughs> that was a that was a long night. You, you you want to talk about true behind the scenes deliberation? That was a very long night. So. Yeah, that was maybe the hardest night. Yeah, ultimately. But you know, everyone knows at home. Like that's when Madeline had her meltdown, and it was all sorts of fun things happened. At and a meme was born. So <laughs> from trying moments to great television. <laughs> Well, on that note, I think it's time we take a dive into and talk about this episode's um, Creature Feature movie review. And for this episode, um, we we are reaching back to what Drac referred to kind of loosely in the last episode as, oh, God, there's that movie. You know, the submarine Nazi movie. I think there's maybe vampires or something. Well, little did we know, she almost got it exactly right. The movie is called Blood Vessel, and it's directed by Justin Dix, and it's streaming now on Shudder. So that was the movie we chose for um, this week's episode. We've invited Michael to be a part of the review, and let's see what everyone thought. Well, I think we should start from a sort of critical point of view, right? So let's talk about... uh, Overall, do you feel the movie was a successful scare? Was it? What is it? A successful horror movie? What do you? What do you guys think? Let's start with that. Personally, I think that this movie is very ambitious. I think that the movie sets out to do a lot of things, and not all of them are done exceedingly well. Um, in terms of like a good scare, I wasn't ever scared, but I do think that there is an interesting mythology that's created, and kind of they riff on a lot of cool parts about you know like the history of vampires, and you know. I love a Nazi vampire movie. I do wish there were more Nazi vampires in this Nazi vampire movie. (laughs) What do you think, Michael? Well, you know, when you look at classic monsters like a vampire or a werewolf, we're at a point in the zeitgeist where it's really tricky to do old monsters in new ways that are engaging and exciting and fun. 
And I agree with Ian that this is very ambitious. And even if it doesn't hit all the marks, I was really excited to see that they were trying to reach into some territory that you don't always see with vampires, especially, you know, while still kind of paying reverence to vampire mythology, there's a lot here that is sort of predicated on on vampire lore and uh, pop culture vampires. Dracula himself travels to England on a boat in the book. And by the time the boat arrives to the shore, it's empty. It's a ghost ship. And this movie is literally the ghost ship carrying the vampires in the bowels of the ship. And the opening credits were very stylized to be reminiscent of a Hammer film. Uh, I, I clocked that right away, how they're blocked in red over, and you get all of the departments. It was just kind of fun, and even the look of the vampire I liked. It was very classic Nosferatu as opposed to, like, sexy guy with fangs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that there was a lot of, of love and care put into the references, but... Did it work as a whole? I I don't know. I guess it's up to the viewer. I think atmospherically, it really reached for the stars. But I think that also when you're making independent films, reaching for the stars doesn't always mean you grab them all, you know? Right. Absolutely. What what do you think? Or perhaps you come back down to earth completely empty-handed. I don't know. (laughs) I think the premise is super cool. And I love vampires. And I think I talked about this a little bit briefly before we started to record. Like, if there's a vampire book or a new vampire genre, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to watch the movie. I'm going to read it. From... Twilight to Anne Rice. I mean, just all of them Bram Stokers, like read them all. Yes, even Twilight, because I didn't even realize until I had read them all that it was like a, a teeny bopper, like kind of series. So I'm like, I'm, I'm getting the books and I'm like, damn, Drac. I mean, these vampires, it's kind of cool, but it's such an easy read. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> I want to tell, no, I'm not. I am. Uh, you are. Go okay. ahead. <laughs> so, so he's like on book three. I'm like, Something weird about those. I was like, Twilight. I was like, don't let like kids read that book. And he's like, I don't know. I just picked it up and I'm I'm whatever I'm reading. I'm like, okay. He's like, well, let's stop at the bookstore and, and I'm gonna grab the next one. I'm like, okay, fine. So we go and and he, he's like looking through the literary section. He's like, Where the fuck is this book? I couldn't so he, know. He goes I couldn't, up no, to I the, couldn't find he it. Goes I'm up like, to the 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 bookstore clerk and I was like, well, where is this book? I can't find it. And she's like, Oh, Follow me. It's over here in the young adults oh, section. And I so swear the look on your face. I thought you were. I mean, I really have I, not seen you that startled in a long time. I, I know I blanched and that I went from pure white to like total red because it was it was really embarrassing. But you better believe I bought all the rest of the series and you sure read that did. I, I, I'm committed to a vampire story. So I do yeah. like those Italian vampires, though, in the Twilight books. Because they're real, they're like real vampires. Yeah, yeah. No, no, some of it was actually cool. And I like these ideas that for each individual, di- different a set of powers manifest. So it could depend. And then there's different cabals and, you know, mixing the, the werewolves and, you know, imprinting on each other. Like there were, there were a lot of cool concepts and the sparkly nature of their skin wasn't such a thing until I think it hit the film. Like I can't do this, <laughs> but the books were like much more interesting. I mean, I do remember a time in which uh, I want to say it was like Fleshjack or some other company like that sold like an Edward Cullen dildo, oh. and it was like it was like a translucent and had glitter, and you Huey like, and <laughs> and they literally advertised it was like pop it in the freezer for that icy vampire touch. I was like, that is how you get coochie burn. So when the question is asked, how do you go from blood vessels to Edward Cullen sparkle dildos in like two minutes? The answer is Creatures of the Night, Ian. Thank you. <laughs> 
Not what I had in mind when we started this <laughs> podcast. Thank you, Bo. So I love a vampire book. I thought that, or a vampire story. I thought that the idea of like vampires on a vessel like this was super cool. It was a tip of the hat to Bram Stoker's and the vampires themselves were absolutely the coolest part of this book yeah. or this, this film. I think we waited way too long to actually see them. I mean, the buildup for me is exciting. A buildup is a great thing because the tension you're reaching for, what could this be? What could that mean? You're looking for visual cues. And I think for me, that was like a big miss where we had this interesting buildup, but the delivery took like way too long. And I was kind of over it by that point. I can see that. I mean, I feel like as a horror movie, no, as a monster movie, interesting, you know, like, uh, I, I don't think, uh, you should go into this movie expecting a masterpiece, but I think it's a fun monster movie. I mean, I do also agree that it took a long time to get to the monster. Yeah. Mm -hmm painfully long time i think one of the issues i had with the movie was you know it was set in world war ii i'm a history buff so i have a lot of problems with some of the things they did like i did not buy even from moment one that these actors were selling me that they lived in that time period just because of their mannerisms and the way they talk to each other Mm -hmm. and the accents almost seemed it seems so exaggerated that it almost seemed it seemed like a more theater than a movie. It seemed like mm-hmm. this was a theater piece mm-hmm. or like a cartoon or something. Like everyone's like, I have this exaggerated accent and I have this one and I have a mm-hmm. sailor's hat. And it was like so theatrically designed almost. Yeah, there was something else just about uh, whether it was the writing or the delivery. I feel like in the in the buildup before we meet, you know, our vampires, it's almost like everyone is vying for the position of comic relief. You know, like everyone is cracking jokes and it just, you know, I, I, I always go back and forth with comedy and horror and I think when it's done well, it's done really well. But here it was a miss for me. I'm like, oh, I wish that not everyone was trying to be like <laughs> Nazi vampires, huh? Like it just felt strange. I kind of felt like the ensemble felt like a cast of a video game, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because everybody sort of fulfilled a role. Like, oh, you totally. Know, I may be the Australian, you know, tough guy, but I also do this that mm. suits the plot. You know, I Absolutely. was the cook here, but I worked in a shipyard, so I know about the boiler. This XYZ, everybody had sort of a comma and mm-hmm. that suited the needs of the boat, which of course is like how stories are constructed, but how it was introduced to all of us, it felt like you just hit start on the game. Here's who your ensemble is and mm-hmm. who do you use for like the specific mission going throughout the boat. To Absolutely. <laughs> like, oh, bring the assistant captain because he was also a sous chef. He'll know his way around the kitchen. Like, choose this guy to bring him downstairs, like that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, because if you choose to do a movie in history, I feel like you you really have to do your research and it's important to think about how would these people, how would a woman interact with someone in that time period? And not that everyone would, would interact the same, but the same with like, you know, there's a black man who is in the military and how would they all interact and talk to each other? And to me, it just... I don't think so. And the mannerisms, you know, it was almost like the way that we talk to each other today is very casual. I don't necessarily think it was like that back then from at least what I understand. And it was almost like, let's use old world language, but speak mm-hmm. to each other in a casual manner, which didn't work for me. And also a lot of the props too, I felt like were not historically accurate. Like the doll, I was like, no doll looked like that in the forties. And not only that, it was supposed to be antique because guys are antique dealers. That means what was it from the twenties, 1910? It certainly didn't look like that then. And that shit just drives me crazy. I can't help You mentioned it. something about the spine of the book or the, the pages being goldly. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but it did when, you know, because this was this ancient vampiric tome that they had that, you know, as a prop and, um, the interior looked all handwritten mm-hmm. and all this, but the edges were like, 
gold leaf. Like it looked like a Bible from the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this, I don't know that this lines up, you know? I don't want to say 100% on that, but it takes me out of the fantasy a little bit because then I start obsessing over, is this off, you know? And some people don't mind that, mm-hmm. but to me, it, it definitely uh, is a detractor. Well, so I want to talk about the kind of the artifacts in the film because you do get to see a lot of them. And some of the Romanian artifacts were very believable. I thought the sarcophagus was great. Some of the artifacts from what we presume uh, to be like an ancient Romanian site. And particularly there was a book and I thought it was kind of funny because it it almost verged on like a campy prop that I would put in a show because it was a big leather bound book and Mm -hmm. the spine of the book was literally made out of a human spine. Right. Which I thought was like really fucking clever. And I'm like, oh God, I want half of these things like in my house. (laughs) Like I really do. But as far as the World War II artifacts, I, I got to fully agree with you because, you know, I'm looking for small details to bring me to that fantasy uh, time period. Right. Like uh, Michael and I, you were and I talking before the, the podcast started and it was uh, this movie was sort of like in the same vein um, as that other sort of <laughs> Nazi vampire movie. What was that called? Overlord. Overlord. Right. Yeah. Which, which I loved. And it kind of explores the Nazi experiments and obsession with the supernatural. It's a very cool, like kind of crossroads to like live within. And I think blood vessel lives there too. Um, but there was like this old film case that they wanted to put onto like this eight millimeter reel mm-hmm. and project. And the word, which I didn't, you know, presume was German was Geheim. Um, and I'm like, Ooh, let me Google that. Cause I'm like, what could that mean? Like, and I'm like, what esoteric strange word could this translate to? And it translates to secret. Oh, work. That's what I'm going to do with all the Dragula files for now. And I'm going to write secret on the front and that will save it. (laughs) After that, I was like, get me out of here. I quit. (laughs) Now let's talk about, you know, the star of the movie, which is the vampire. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I personally believe the vampire was handled very well. I loved its introduction. Yeah. That was the part that I was like, Mm -hmm. this is worth the wait. I thought maybe the movie was going to change because it 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 was slow building up. And then when the vampire emerged, I was like, I love this. I love the sarcophagus. I love the way he sat up. Yeah. I really felt like they borrowed from our hands and nails heavily. Like, I mean, and immediately using the domination of will against, Mm -hmm. I love that. I loved it. So, but what did you guys think of it? Yeah. Well, you know, I had mentioned when I was talking about the vampire references that are thick in this film, this vampire very much looks like Count Orlok from Nosferatu, the F.W. Murnau silent film. And I think that's very much by uh, design because we have sort of moved into uh, a space in pop culture where vampires are always very human-like and sexy, where there's like, you know, a human mystique to them. But this takes it back to the monster. There's like a primal beastie quality to it. And uh, I, I love the fingers because it, it is it's that like very spindly sort of creepy, great on shadows, great against like, you know, the, the coffin with the nails scratching down. Absolutely. And I, I liked the delineation here rather than making it a human vampire, because in a world where there are Nazis, we already have human monsters. So let's show what an other an other monster looks like. Mm-hmm. And they really went there. And I think the monster design here is really great. It's classic, but also fresh. I mean, it's very difficult to make a bat humanoid person uh, look good, but they really did. Like mm-hmm. when he rose out of that coffin, I was like, in. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. No, certainly. And I and I got over quickly the fact that they were absolutely coming for Boulay handography. I got over that real quick. I'm like, okay, I'll take it as a compliment because that's what it's meant to be. It's interesting because I've seen, I almost feel like there was like a little bit of like a schizophrenic 
approach to like the vampire's powers. Yes. Because oftentimes you will see vampires and they're they're very physical and right. they're physically way more powerful than a human. They could, you know, toss them across the room and this type of things. But sometimes we'll be introduced to vampires that are way more like influential and a little more subtle on like a mental level where they are kind of like tormenting from a distance or changing, appearing in people's dreams or just dominating someone else's mind. And we saw this vampire and it seemed from the start that it was like this vampire operates more in the realm of the mind and domination. And once you're bit, he can control you from a distance. And that's cool. We've seen that before. Um, but then like there's like a family of vampires that's introduced in Blood Vessel. And we saw the youngest, the girl, the smallest girl who has the body maybe of a 13-year-old kind of toss adults across the room easily. So if you stop and question, then why were the vampire parents so easily captive in this, in this cell when all it was, was a door that was holding them in like a creature of that size. If the girl could throw people around like ragdolls, then they could bust out of that room easily. I could be wrong, but wasn't there a cross on top of one of the boxes? They show it in a quick cutaway. Like, and that might be why she couldn't have gotten no out out the the, the, the locked door, you know, where the room that keeps them in that room. Right. I'm with you on this one. Cause I even thought, you know, when we're, first introduced to the vampire he like he attacks whoever is in like basically whoever opens the sarcophagus like he attacks them and he like lifts them with one hand i was like okay cool we have a physical vampire and then he's like struggling against the door i'm like okay so she's just got the strength of an average human and sometimes they're really powerful and sometimes they're not and sometimes the mind control is like super spot on it's like you know like blood doll absolutely right and then other times it's like oh i'm struggling to move this hand (laughs) maybe that person that maybe that person's will is stronger right sure i I think that we can make those sorts of i guess assessments of it and like you know we can kind of give it those passes but i wish and this is kind of i think my thing overall like i said i think there's a lot of cool ideas but i don't think that they really went in on some of these ideas like i would love to know you know, the backstories of these characters or even like, you know, why does this character, like if, if they really do have such a strong will, like where does that come from? You know, like why are they more suited against this type of vampire than, you know, the girl who just got thrown across the room? Hmm. You know, it, I thought it was interesting that they were trapped, that the vampires were trapped down in there and were doing everything remotely. I almost think the whole movie could have been interesting if the vampire never emerged and was always in there and was just fucking with their heads the whole time. I mean, that'd be, if you did that well, it could be really interesting. God, you make me think that it could be um, a a really cool way for them to play with the idea of the vampire even having the ability to affect people's lives during sunlight. If they're held in the hull, they could still be effective as like this, this nefarious force from from the shadows. One thing I really love with new vampire movies is if they introduce something new on the lore or add something a little bit to it. Uh, like, I don't know if you all saw Vampires vs. Bronx, but they did the thing where holy water boils if a vampire is nearby. And that's just kind of like a new, cute little addition. And this movie leaned into a little bit of something that I've not seen before with the idea that you're, you're building upon the mental control. I mean, you know, as far back as Dracula, you have Dracula controlling Renfield from afar and driving him mad. But I've never seen a movie approach the dra- the vampire human psychic link where it actually harms the vampire if the human yeah. is harmed. Oh yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, like there was a, like a, like their symbiotic relationship opened the vampire up yeah. just as much as it opened its victim up. That, yeah. that is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. One thing that I. <laughs> This is just a silly thing, but I want to point it out because I hope if any other uh, aspiring movie makers listen to our podcast, they will take this note. I'm assuming a vampire 
is like a person in the sense that they're made out of flesh, right? And they're not made out of uh, crepe paper or something flash paper. flammable. <laughs> oh, but for yeah. some reason, and I've seen this in other movies, it's like even if whether you're a person, vampire, whatever, you're a biological entity, and fire hits you and you burst into flame. And I'm like, when the fuck would that ever happen? I'm like, your clothes would catch on fire, right. but you're not just going to burn and scream and like flail around until you die. Like that's not going to happen unless you're covered in fuel. So, <laughs> and that happened with the, the daughter, you know, mm-hmm. there was something on the ground, which that makes sense. But then she just continued to burn and burn as if she was made out of kindling. Like mm-hmm. I thought that was really bizarre. And then there was another instance where the, like the mother vampire, she gets shot. And I, like I instantly, I paused. I was like, wait, did I miss? Are there, you know, are these silver bullets? Are they full of holy water? Is that like, is the ship armed to fight vampires? Cause I mean like one bullet from this anti-aircraft missile thing. And she's like, ah, like bursting into flames. I was like, wait, is that how that happens? I don't think so. Maybe the maybe the vampires in this movie just weren't physically that super powerful. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they're stronger than humans, but not you know because in some movies they're not necessarily mega. Even in Dracula, the you know in Bram Stoker's Dracula, like they weren't all like super physically, physically powerful yeah, like right. that. So maybe that's what it was. But I thought that too. I was like, well, it wasn't only that. It wasn't just that it knocked her down. It seemed like she was like coiling in pain like it was somehow doing something to her like it was a cross or holy water something you're right and then he just chops her head off and then he's like wow vampires are hard to kill i'm like not really oh actually sis that seemed pretty standard for a regular ass person (laughs) truly i want to say this though for all of the coolness that they did pour into the vampires because they were fucking cool they were yeah they were they really did the female dirty because i i felt like they they spent if they had $100, they spent 95 on the guy and they gave the girl like five bucks. We're like, oh, give her some teeth and a weird forehead. <laughs> yeah. And even with the powers too, like I, I just would have liked to see the female demonstrate a little bit more kind of like vicious, savage ability or yeah. you know, something to make her stand out because it, it, for me, it makes it better. Well, and I, unfortunately, I feel like this is a thing that happens with a lot of vampire stories. You know, we know, taking it back to the, the Dracula allegory and illusions, Dracula's got three brides and they never get enough time. And they're arguably super cool. Like, you know, we in the Dracula family, we want those brides to come compete on the show. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, but Absolutely. they never get enough time. And it's like, it kind of feels the same here. It's like, it's 2020. Let the vampire ladies rise. It is time. Not totally. to mention, if if those two had been alive for as long as it seems like they had been, they would have figured out that the girl is the leader. Like, let's not, let's not get it twisted. They would have figured out, like, you're smarter and more powerful than me. <laughs> but no, you know, I mean, that's something that we do in the show, right? Because we, we I hate that about horror movies, too. Like you say about Dracula's Bride. So that's why in our show, we flip the script and objectify the men. We always have, like, big, beautiful muscle men around that are presented and in, in sort of obscene ways that are almost belittling to them. You right. know what I mean? And we dispose of them quickly because we just want to flip the script on that. Those are the brides of Dracula, Right. Exactly. exactly. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they are literally I mean, as Ian was describing it. He's like, you know, we see the scene where, where he just picks the guy up like with one arm. I'm like, I could do that. I did it at the beginning like, of resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> there was one thing just in terms of like, I guess the vampire family, like we we've talked about the mom. We talked about the dad. I kind of feel like we have to talk about the, like let the right one in kid. Yeah. I was like, that just the same kid from this movie. <laughs> like, I don't know. She was, 
for for whatever reason, I feel like everyone just gave her a total free pass. They were like, little girl in a gas mask, what's wrong? I was like, that is, like, she's the only living thing on this ship. Like, red flags abound. I know, sure. I was like, that's Loris from Resurrection before the reveal. <laughs> Think oh about God, yeah. <laughs> Oh, with the gas mask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there was one last thing, though, that I think, like, now that we're talking about it, I actually really loved, again, about the you know, the male vampire is, I do think, you know, with the boule claws and just kind of his styling, like, again, we see almost kind of like a queer kind of like sentiment about him. Like mm-hmm. even the way that he like brushes his hands across the the sarcophagus or like lifts his hands up to this, like to the light. I'm like, oh my God, she is like such a drama queen. Like Serving, I live for totally. her. Yes. Well, and I've said this so many times on so many podcasts, but it, it, never better than to say it right here, right now. All vampires are queer period. (laughs) I agree. Because you, you know, to try and have a vampire, an entity that exists outside of humanity prescribed to human sexuality or gender ideas makes no sense because they're not that like they exist beyond. They are other in the Mm -hmm. coolest possible way. So yeah, they're queer. I totally agree with that. And there's always been that there's this homosexual, you know, undertone when you have these Mm -hmm. male vampires and they're like sucking the blood out of their male victim. You know, it's kind of like it, from moment one, I feel like we probably all, as queer people, registered that. Uh, that is so disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, also as a queer person, I feel like I also registered the fact that Alyssa Sutherland, who plays the main character. Jane is, Prescott, yeah, as her character. Oh, yeah, she is uh, one of the, like, quote, clackers in The Devil Wears Prada. So, like, she's oh. just, like, one of, like, the fabulous girls who, like, works in the office and wears uh, stilettos. Oh, I had no idea. Really? Yeah. I was watching. I was like, where do I know her from? And I Googled. I was like, ah, a starring role in a quality film, honey. <laughs> I, I want to mention, though, like, especially in reflection of what we were saying earlier about, like, these are all kind of, like, 2D characters from a video game. Uh, Alyssa Sutherland's performance as Jane Prescott was probably the strongest and the most yes. believable. I think that she wasn't trying to come across as something more or less than what her character actually was when we were introduced to her as mm-hmm. sort of like this military nurse. And she goes on to become the fiercest representation, I think, and, and the carrier of that vampiric bloodline. Oh, yeah. Because yes. she looked deadly. She did. But that also, I mean, it made me think again, like, okay, maybe there's an expanded mythology or maybe we're seeing a new breed of vampires. But I'm like, okay, everyone on the ship so far who has gotten bitten is starting to, you know, be afflicted with these like visual kind of miasma that kind of comes over them. And even her, to a certain extent, you know, when she gets bit on her hand, it starts to spread on her arm. But then, you know, when she gives her really fabulous ending line of the movie, mm. she just looks flawless, honey. <laughs> right. Well, maybe it takes time. Uh, who's it to do say? take time to make a vampire. Yeah, she does. She was new vamp. She was newly turned. I could see that, too, because the other ones had been like, you know, because remember when they first showed the female vampire, the wife, when they first opened the sarcophagus, she looked really bad, which honestly... Mm-hmm. I was like, you should have left her like that the whole movie because I love that look. I'm like, I want to look like that. I'm cool with that. But (laughs) then when he gave her a little blood, she started to like get pretty again. So that's probably what it was is that this one was just very new. Mm. Well, one thing I wanted to point out since you mentioned sort of the the presentation of the characters that I zeroed in on quite quickly, and it might just be because I've spent so much time looking at the intersection of queer identity and horror, is the fact that the uh, the British intelligence agent is definitely presented as a queer character. Oh, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. But, like, in not a way that I felt I liked. Like, it was, you know, the reference, like, oh, he was an antique stealer. I'm like, we know what that means. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, then, yeah. and then later, you know, someone calls him uh, shortbread or shortcake, something mm-hmm. as, a, uh, as, a, as a dig. And I'm like, excuse me. 
Excuse you. We would at least be a better pastry than shortcake. <laughs> Thank you. So I think we're in agreement in saying that this is a fun monster movie. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have to agree. But now I'm pissed because when I do reflect on that character, I'm like, yeah, they they really kind of characterized the the kind of like the queer coded character as a coward. They literally yeah. called him a coward, kind of like a thief. He was hiding food for himself. Mm-hmm. He slept away to be like, please rescue me. He thought he was better than everybody else. He didn't give secrets away. Yeah. Like. I do think also in terms of like queer characters, you know, Nathan Phillips, who I think also is one of the lead producers on the film, he plays Sinclair. And then there's another character named Teplov, who is the Romanian character. At one point I was like, can y'all just like get it over with and fuck like that? Like when they're like covered in blood after killing these vampires, I'm yeah, like, there's right. so yeah. much tension. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. And that's what, that's what we were all thinking. <laughs> I don't know, man. I was watching. I was like, there's a lot of tension no, no, no. here. Before you, we blow the ship. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. He shoots, he's gone. Ooh, blow my cargo load. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, on, and on that note, I think we all say it's not a perfect movie. And I think sometimes the writing kind of goes in and out from questionable to cool. The vampires alone, I think, are a reason to check out Blood Vessel. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fun absolutely. monster movie. Fun. Absolutely. Absolute fun, yeah. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us. I think this is going to be the first, but definitely not the last time we have you for our creature feature movie review. The synergy was fun. I hope the listeners can kind of feel what we're all having fun with here. And um, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And once again, for listeners at home, if you have not already watched Blood Vessel, you can check it out now on Shudder. All right, with that out of the way, it's time to move on to reading and answering some of our most recent listener questions. Though, Ian, if you'll do us the honors, we are more than happy to answer whatever we can. Gabriel writes, how do you challenge yourself? I think the biggest challenge for me in general in my life is to always keep inspired. Because as long as I'm inspired, then I know that I can tackle my creative projects and create them. I'll push, I'll push it as part of a team. I'll push myself. And my life has taught me that kind of overcoming and seeing those creative projects kind of put into the world is super satisfying. And it's enough to kind of like keep me going. I think for me, uh, I challenge myself by just doing the things that everybody tells me that I shouldn't do, (laughs) right? And I mean, of course, if they tell me not to jump off a cliff, I won't do that. (laughs) But I feel like a lot of times, especially in our society, people are sort of locked in these roles, right? They're like, you have to go get this job. You have to get insurance. You have to do this. Mm -hmm. You have all these sort of, you know, nine to five things that keep you busy and stop you from chasing your dreams. And at a very young age, I decided to throw all that in the trash. And I was like, no, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to go over here and do what I want to do. And it worked out, you know? So I feel like I've continued, I continue to do that through my life. Uh, Like the bigger the show gets or the more our projects grow, those people are all along the way that are like, you can't do this or whatever, you know? Yeah. So I think I challenge myself by saying, yeah, actually I can do that. And I'm going to figure out how to do it and make it happen. So that's how I challenge myself. Tamara wants to know, how long did it take y'all's tattoos to be done? I mean, I probably have some ones that you can't see openly on the show. Like people may not be aware of all of them. Um, But I usually all, you know, when I got my crows, it was one session of like six hours. We went one from one right into the other. I have some on my legs where I've sat for a couple of days and sometimes up to like seven or eight hours at a, at a clip. Um, and then there's one on my back that was like super small, which is done in like an hour. How long did the ankle? Cause I remember that was like 
a really long period. It was ridiculous. I mean, I think the longest I sat for the ones on my around like my lower legs and ankles was like five or six hours, but it was a couple of different sessions. And I remember the guy was kind of new at tattooing, even though I think he did a good job of like saturating the black, they're solid black. Um, but I think he kind of really took his time. And I think I made him nervous that he didn't want it to look like, you know, kind of see-through or modeled or imperfect in any way. So he was intimidated, which I liked because I thought he would do a good job, but it kind of came back to bite me in the ass because it went really slow. And for anyone that has tattoos on their lower legs and ankles, it's super bony and extremely painful. Yeah. I think mine took, I don't even know. I feel like five full long, like eight hour sessions. Your back is really insane. Yeah. A really long time. Gadia asks, what scares you in a horror movie? <sighs> Everything scares me in a horror movie. Like, <laughs> I get scared. And, I, you know, that's why I kind of love it. Um, what really scares me, though, like, you know, I'm prone to jump scares and stuff. That I, I don't think that really makes me fearful. It just kind of scares me in the moment. But what really kind of makes me horrified, like, what really scares me, and I've talked about this before, is when we start going into places of the supernatural where the rules of reality can kind of bend and I can't anticipate what might happen at what I'm looking at and not being able to anticipate is what makes me feel off centered and vulnerable. That vulnerability makes me very open to being horrified. Mm. Yeah. I don't think I get scared by anything in a horror movie ever. I think I can be made to feel uncomfortable or, uh, existential dread in a horror movie is what I would say I tune into. And that would be the closest thing to scared, I guess. I don't get scared of it, but I'm like, it's a horrible feeling. <laughs> to make an attempt to, to be more descriptive so listeners know uh, what you mean by that, when you feel like there's like a disregard for humanity or like abuse of people or just like a, a, dr- a dreadful dreariness, like that, that really fucks with you. Yeah, it's almost like that there is, uh, I mean, I'm thinking about like recently when we watched The Lodge a couple of months ago, right? Like the place where here's this girl and the abuse that she suffered and, and the cult and all that and losing her mind and where these kids fucking with her and I, yeah. that shit, I don't like that. Like that, that definitely makes you uncomfortable. Me. Absolutely. Yeah. Lizzie wants to know, my question is Swan mentioned in the last episode that you're watching the new real housewives of Salt Lake city. And I would really like to know what your current thoughts on it are. And if there are any favorite housewives emerging, <sighs> Well, Lizzie, I love you for that question, first of all. <laughs> um, I think this, this the Housewives of Salt Lake City franchise as a whole kind of came out and kind of reinvigorated the Housewives in general. Uh, I, I kind of started to believe that, like, well, all of the seasons now, all of the different cities, they're all self-aware, and we can't get those authentic experiences like some of the first couple of seasons are usually when the cast is kind of fresh and new and shit is like popping and everybody's like at each other's throats and it's real. And I think that's what Salt Lake City brings. It's, it's kind of real. There is one that's sticking out to me as a favorite. <laughs> yes. And I don't know how to describe her and I'm going to try. Okay. So <laughs> she's like this. Okay. She, she starts out by saying something like, my family are pioneers. The, what is it? You know what it is. Yeah, like, like my ancestors before me, I'm here to blaze like a new trail or something like that. And she's sort of self-deprecating and she's hysterical. Like she's like, someone's panicking on the show and she's like wasted. She's like, I got to get my friend out of here. So she calls an Uber and she runs out in the street and she's like, you can't miss me. Uh, I'm like a, a, a 20 stripper with cankles. <laughs> 
I'm like, what? And then this other lady, now this is really, <laughs> so then she's like, one of the other women, and this is a, a whole different rabbit hole, but she uh, married her grandmother's husband. Work. I'll tell you about later. <laughs> but anyway, someone on the show calls her a grandfather, grandfather fucker. fucker. <laughs> so then this character that I'm talking about in her talking head is like, you know, that was, that was rude for her to say that. I mean, look, I fucked a grandpa before. It's not that bad. <laughs> oh, my God. Do I love this character. <laughs> exactly. So that funny. I can't remember her name, but right now I have my eye on her. Yeah. For me, I, I think Jen is like the obvious queen. Like she's sort of like the loud, dramatic, overly done. Like when she walks out of the house, it's like full makeup furs you know but she also like gets in everybody's face and she's emotional and she wears her heart I'm on her sleeve her. Oh, I, I like love her I feel like she's so fake like you know before the show started filming none of that was going on like you, she looks ridiculous she's <laughs> which walking is around exa- looking like a drag queen in her city and you know she didn't do that before. which is exactly why i live for her you know like she I comes know. up serving everything like they're going to a 20s party and everyone's like kind of flapper cute little short dresses bitch comes in with like furs to the ground giant mermaid tail with a train that she has an assistant carrying in the room you know how I knew Whoa. she was phony, though? Because when she first walked up, and you could tell this is when they first started to film, Meredith and the other ones that are like more plain and, you know. Conservative. You saw that their look on their face was like, <laughs> they were like, what the fuck? When she walked up, because you know no one ever dresses like that in that town. And yeah. they were just like, okay, this is what we're doing. <laughs> so there's, so I think Jen is, that's Jen, and she's kind of like the obvious go-to because she, she's like the drama queen. I think she's kind of like, the pivotal character like we in our way when we called Atlanta like kind of oh we're watching Nini or we're watching Tamara or whatever yeah. like we assign the name I think it's, it would be easy to say that Salt Lake City would be like we're watching Jen because she's that that girl but my other kind of sleeper favorite I think her name is Whitney she's the youngest or one of the younger ones mm-hmm. she's blonde and she's kind of been excommunicated from the Mormon church because she had this big scandalous affair while she was married and her man was married to somebody else and she has like a stripper pole in her house and she's we like are going off right love now. love her <laughs> On the next episode of Creatures of the Night, we turn this podcast solely into a Housewives podcast. <laughs> no, but um, Darren introduced us to his friend. We're going to be a guest on his podcast. Where yes, all they talk about is the podcast. Housewives podcast. Yeah. <gasps> oh my God. Yes. <laughs> no restraints. Not at all. <laughs> Daphne wants to know, is music important for you in your day-to-day life? And since you said you love such a huge variety of music, could you tell me some of your favorites? I'm going to say music is definitely... Uh, a big part of my everyday life day to day. Like I actually time my showers. I'm going to like, today's going to be like a one song shower because I got to get out of the house or I'm like, I'm going to make this a me moment. This is going to be like a three song shower. And that's the way I do that. Yeah. And like in the car, my playlist will match my mood. Like sometimes I want to go the fuck off and I'll play like, you know, I don't know. My, 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 uh, my playlist have like kind of funny names. Um, as to what I'm listening to, I still like, like al- mostly alternative music. I like a lot of old 80s music. If I'm going into like more modern stuff, I'm listening to like Ostra and Poppy, kind of like mixed in with like Susie and Depeche Mode. Depends what mood I'm in. Release the playlist, sis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to look up some of their names while Drac is giving her answer. Yeah, no, music's super important. I mean, we listen to music all the time, uh, together and separately. For me, I mean, I really can't stress how varied my musical tastes are. I mean, it can go from like really old, like 
like 1960s country to hip hop to jazz. I like a lot of jazz and blues, like old school, like 1950s blues and jazz. I mean, it's really completely across the board, but I like soulful singers. I like, I like people that can actually sing. I'm not into kind of talk through, you know, I don't know, kind of music. <laughs> so some of my playlists like are like a whale. <laughs> Uh, just kind of off the cuff here on my Spotify, some of my playlists are called Pop It, Bitch, um, Hard As Fuck, Vogue Femme, let me see, Dragula Mood, Rock For The Gods, Boulet Brothers Sound. I don't know. That's just a little little array. That was amazing. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Benjamin writes, For my question, I was wondering if there were any extermination challenges that you have personally attempted yourselves, either during production or at different times altogether. Any fun stories to share about the experience? And have there ever been any challenges you wanted to do but ended up being too dangerous or controversial? The extermination challenges are based off of things that we've done in drag before. So most of them we've done, you know, we haven't jumped out of a plane. We haven't done a lie detector test, even though I would love to do it. Not so much to you, (laughs) but to the crew. (laughs) But as far as things that we couldn't do, I am absolutely sure that we've thought of things that we couldn't do before. I think Ian probably could speak to this better because you're usually the one that says we can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And Jack- Is there any of you guys can think of that we're like, we just can't do that? I wanted Melissa to be fierce to jump off of the pier in San Francisco. Yeah. We talked about like a, um, what do they call it? Like a, like a derby car derby where they're like crashing each oh, other like a demolition demolition derby. derby which i would love to do but i think we could do that. the fucking insurance on that i don't know yeah yeah i mean i think there there are a lot of ideas that i'm not here to say that we can't do them it's just we got to figure out how to do them yeah some that's the, true some of the weird places we go i think we've said this before <laughs> where we're like we we start talking and we go too deep and then we have to like we like revisit the idea yeah. we're like holy shit that's crazy we're like yeah we'll tie them up arm behind their back Give them epicac, force feed them everything, punch them, make them puke, and then they have to eat it up. <laughs> oh, and then get ready for your floor show. Drunk. And Erica's like, done that. <laughs> or when Erica brings her own epicac. She's like, I already did that. I practiced that last night. I, I want a future season of Exterminations Only where it's Erica versus Madeline. Because Madeline also has done her. How her come it doesn't show. hurt Madeline? Because that's the thing. When she did the, the shock therapy, I'm like, it's on like 20. She's insane. And seriously, <laughs> I was like, why is she? She's like, eh, God, like, like it's an annoyance, you know? Asher wants to know, why is Ian so offended when being mistaken for a woman on the phone or in a drive-thru to the point of altering his natural speaking voice when he has admitted to using she as a default slash universal pronoun for himself and everyone else in his life? Well, we're going to let Ian answer, but I can wrap it up as a general answer. That's her prerogative. If she don't want to come across sounding like a woman and disguise her voice, then so be it. And it, I don't think it's up for judgment or has to do with anyone else because it's the way that Ian interact with the world. Oh my God, Swan. Thank you for <laughs> defending me. Yes. Um, I do want to say like Asher, I hope that you don't take those things as like, I'm trying to like purposefully like misgender people. Like if anyone were to ever say, Oh, my default pronouns are X, Y, Z. I would obviously respect those for me. It does come from a place of like, when I was younger, like my voice was always a thing that people kind of were like, oh, like you're a fag, like you're a voice, like you sound like a woman. And truly, it's kind of like a survival tactic. Like 
when people are like, oh, ma'am, she, it's like, <gasps> ooh, it like it sends like a thing up my spine. There is a part of me that when a complete and total stranger is like, oh, hi, Miss DeVogler, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, please don't know that I'm gay. But, you know, <laughs> there we go. I think that's really honest and accurate. I'm proud of you to give that kind of answer, and I love you. It's also part of dealing with being queer and being outcast is to make humor of things. Mm-hmm. And I know it, it, yeah. it, that's generational too, because I remember during like, you know, the AIDS crisis of the eighties, like when we first started going to gay bars, when we were like in the two thousands or whatever, you know, we're like little fags going out to the club, mm-hmm. there'd be older Queens that would be like, ah, this person has AIDS and blah. And we were like, Gooped. You know, we were like so offended, like, oh my God. And I'm like, you know what? And then someone told me one time, you're like, you're so offended, but you know why? That's how we dealt with it was humor. We all laugh amongst ourselves about it. And because it's so, because it's actually very scary exactly, and critical. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, I think that the, that the gay pain, the queer pain that all of us deal with growing up comes out. We make jokes about things mm-hmm. like that because it gets us through. It's, it's funny. Even, of course, sure. If you dig down deep, is it hurtful that someone is misgendering you or thinking you're one? Yes. But that, we're just making light of it between us, a group of friends. It takes totally. the power and intensity down a couple of It's notches. the same thing with us owning the word faggot, you know, which mm-hmm. some people agree with and some people don't. But on stage, a lot of times we'll, we'll refer to ourselves, to ourselves that yeah. way. And it's like, it's just a way of dealing with that. And, you know, who knows, maybe the future, uh, other generations will not find the humor in that. But I think it's gotten, that humor has gotten a lot of people through pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And reflecting on something that both of you guys said, like I, I, say this on stage. I've said this on stage so many times. Sometimes I'll bring the entire show to a screeching halt to make a dramatic moment to just say, every day I look up at the stars and thank the universe that I am a fucking faggot. Yeah. Because I, it used to be something that I would run from or be scared to admit or you you know, send a shrill up my spine if someone thought I would look too feminine or this, that, and the other. But in my time, I've grown that I have my own community. I have a different kind of family that I've chosen. I've created. I'm proud of who I am, what I am, and I try to reflect that back to anyone in my fucking community. Asher, thank you for asking that question. I really appreciate it. Last question. Uh, Haley says, was there ever an instance where you believed censorship was warranted in your work? Has there ever been something you deemed too extreme for Dragula? I think the the one of the edits I saw of the piercing video, because look, this is from uh, the Blade Brothers Dragula season two, episode one. It was the Hellraiser, once again, the Cenobite challenge and the extermination. They had to do piercings. Now, I'm not going to say it didn't suck because it did, but this is a show. It's an entertainment show. And I saw cuts of that that were like laughable. And I saw cuts of it that were a fucking horror movie. And I think that that was a place where we absolutely were careful about how it was presented. And it's still a lot. It is still too much for a lot of people. So I would say that's an example of where we uh, maybe censored something. And on that note, actually, I'm going to censor our work right now because I think we are running out of time with the listener questions. So, Ian, thank you again for reading these questions to us. And for listeners at home, we want to remind you that we love getting your questions. So please keep emailing them to us at creatures at bouletbrothersdragula.com. Now it's time to change up the mood a little and welcome you all to this episode's Haunting of History. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life, documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. 
Santa Claus is synonymous with Christmas time. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, and he watches you ominously both day and night, judging your every move in a year-long test to see if your actions have gained his approval. While you may detest the idea of a bearded, red-suited deity watching you all year long, you could always rest assured that even if he judged your actions as unfavorable, his only punishment to you would be to leave you a lump of coal on Christmas morning. The same can't be said for Santa's peers. You see, while Santa Claus may have become the only winter spirit in the game, once upon a time there were many winter entities swooping around and judging people, and if you were found wanting, you got more than a lump of coal as punishment. Enter the Christmas time goddess Perchta, who once haunted the hearts and minds of people living in the alpine regions of southern Germany. Perchta was revered as a pagan goddess who punished the slovenly, the idle, the greedy, and the inquisitive. She tossed children into her sack and carted off with them with their legs dangling out as a warning to others. In one story, a young farmhand who incurs her ire by spying on her goes blind. She is often depicted as a decrepit old crone with a beaked nose made of iron, dressed in rags and hiding a long butcher's knife under her skirt. Legend has it that Perchta was not interested in your general good behavior, but rather the tidiness of your house, the state of your home, and your yarn spinning. It is said that villagers should have all of their flax spun by the twelfth night, for when Christmas season was over, it would be time to set up your loom and you must have enough thread to start your weaving or you would incur Perchta's wrath. Not only were you required to get your sewing together, but Perchta also demanded that your home be tidy, your sewing room be neat, and a bowl of porridge was left out for her on Christmas night. Should Perchta find your home lacking, legend has it that she would crawl into your bedroom, climb atop your body, and disembowel you with her knife as punishment for your sloppiness. She was famous for stuffing her victims' stomachs with hay and rocks and sewing them back together for their loved ones to discover the next morning. Cutting out your guts was not perched as only hobby. It is said that she also flew through the night sky flanked by an army of demonic-looking lost souls called Perchton, who are visually nearly indistinguishable from Krampus. Legend has it that if you hear the wind and thunder roaring and rumbling through the mountains, you are actually hearing the sounds of Perchta leading the wild hunt. While Perchta may be long gone and forgotten in today's modern world, it may be worth a little extra tidying up around the holidays this year just to be safe. In a year where a demented tyrant is considered the leader of the free world and a deadly virus has shut down life as we know it, it may be wise to expect the unexpected. They say God's powers come from people believing in them, and maybe you listening to this podcast and hearing about Perchta is just enough to spark her back to life. Maybe her bony finger is running across the top of your cabinets right now, pulling up dust that you should have gotten up earlier this year. Maybe she's rummaging through the clothes and books you've smashed under your bed as we speak, biding her time and waiting for midnight. Or maybe it's just all in your imagination. Happy holidays, everyone.
That's all the time we have for this episode of the Belay Brothers Creatures of the Night. And just to remind you, that is also the last episode we'll be recording this year. I know we've spent our first season of the show scaring you and talking about terrifying things, but all that aside, from Swan, Ian, myself, and the entire Creatures of the Night team, we want to wish you all happy holidays and an amazing new year. We encourage you all to start the new year off by forgiving yourself and others, and to take some time to appreciate the magical person that you are before you start off a whole new year. No matter what your mind may tell you sometimes, and no matter what social media may tell you, and no matter what the media may tell you, we hope that you realize that you are just as valuable and worthwhile as any other living person or thing, and that you start your new year off loving and appreciating yourself for who you are. Happy holidays, and thanks for listening to the Belay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Boulet Brothers Creatures of the Night is hosted and produced by Drac Morda and Swanthula Boulet, along with co-host and producer Ian DeVogler, in association with Dread Central. Edited and mixed by Ernesto Hortada, with music by Niran Spector. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.